Hey, what's up, Revolution? This is Greg Sizemore, pastor at Creekside Church. I am uh, literally sitting on the back porch of our uh, community center here in North Paulding. Um, Just wanted to come and say thanks so much for you guys, your support, all that you do for us. We wouldn't exist without your generosity, uh, so thank you. COVID hit. Uh, six months after we launched our church. So no, no planter uh, could ever plan for anything like that. Uh, but man, I just wanna say God has been insanely uh, faithful to us. Um, we had a clear vision, a clear mission to radically love our community and j- then just simply equip disciple makers. And so we have really had opportunities through the pandemic. God has continued to provide uh, our needs financially. Um, and then even through all of that, we had our one year anniversary just a few weeks ago and we just celebrated that we've seen 30 people give their life to Jesus. We've baptized, I think 29 of them, still waiting on a few in, in the pipeline. Um, we've taken over a hundred people through our discipleship process and continuing to already see uh, multiplication happen. So even in the midst of trial and tribulation and just all the chaos, God has totally sustained everything that we're doing. The cool thing about our story and just connection with with you guys was we were kind of the first born out of our network that we started a couple years ago. Um, so we really learned a lot through it and, and we learned how to plant healthy churches. And so we've, thank God, have been, an, you know, we've experienced what it's supposed to look like and how to launch healthy churches. And again, that's because of just the relationship and the support that we've received from churches like you guys. Yeah, yeah, give it up. Again, we want you guys to know, and so we can all celebrate together just what your generosity has done. And so we're just sharing stories about that each week. We got a couple more weeks to go. We're excited about all that God is doing. But specifically, the last two stories are the stories that we showed last week, and then this week are two of our church planters that both had their one year anniversary this year, and again, a heck of a year to uh, be a part of a new church plant and really not have you know, the, the giving base and all the things that, that you require to build a healthy church, but both of them have done so well, and then our network of churches supporting them and caring for them and loving for them. And so that church is in Paulding County, and we are so excited about what God is doing with them and can't wait to continue to see what God's gonna continue to do with them. And that's really a part of our vision as a church to multiply to multiply the mission of our church, which is to love Jesus and grow people. So thank you for those of you that give around here. We want to celebrate that, your generosity. And we got some just amazing things that God is doing here locally and internationally as well. And we'll celebrate those in the next coming weeks, all right? All right, if you got a Bible, turn it to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. I have been having a tendency here lately, and I don't know why, uh, to say Matthew at some point in time, because it's not like, you know, there are other books in the Bible that don't start with the letter M. So if I happen to say Matthew at, the, at some point, just know, Freudian slip, I meant Micah, all right? We are preaching through the book of Micah. So Micah chapter 6. And last week, we ended in verse 8 of Micah chapter 6, which is really the kind of the core or pivotal, pivotal verse in the entire book. And so we're going to start there this week in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, and dig into it a little bit more because I think its message not only is very prevalent to us because it's in the Bible, but it's very culturally re- uh, relevant to us just because of a lot of things that have happened this year. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into our text today. All right, let's pray. 
Father, as always, we want to stop and slow down, which is hard for us to do. And me particularly, God, it is tough to uh, just be still and recognize our need for you. And so, God, before we jump into the text today, God, we recognize the fact that we need you. We need you to help us to see and to understand the truth that we're going to read. God, and we know that at the same time, when we get help from you, it gives honor to you. And so it honors you to recognize our helplessness. And so God, help us to do that more, to recognize our helplessness, because it does honor you. It glorifies you. And God, as we get into this text today, as always, I do pray that you would help us to see and to hear and then to live out the truth that is in it. Because God, one of the things that we're going to see today is something that the world is yearning for, but can only come through your people. And so God, I pray that we would listen, we would hear, and we would live it out. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Micah chapter six, we're going to start in verse eight and then finish out this chapter. Then we got two more weeks uh, and then we'll finish out Micah chapter seven. But before we jump into Micah chapter six, verse eight, I want to jump back to something that I said at the very beginning of this message series in the book of Micah, which was helping us frame, if you will, the whole message of Micah, which God was writing to his people through the prophet Micah to disciple them. Or another way to say it is to discipline them because they were not living up to the standards that he had called them to. They were not obeying the things that he had asked them to do. And it's important to stress this is why I'm bringing it up again, because unless you just think that God is this angry dude who's always angry at his people, he is not. He is a loving father who is trying to bring his children into line because a it glorifies him, as we said last week, and it actually leads to our enjoyment. And so God is discipling us, or we would say the biblical word of this is discipleship. And, and it's helpful to understand what discipleship is. And so I've got the definition here again on the screen in case you weren't here during week one, or even if you were to remind us again. Discipleship is this. It's the process of putting off the sinful patterns of our family of origin and culture, then being transformed to do, life's God, to do life God's way in the new family of Jesus. And that's by Pete Scazzaro, who's just become a really important figure in my life and our staff's life. We're going through his, one of his studies right now about how to be emotionally healthy. And his whole framework is to help us understand what Micah ultimately is doing. And, and honestly, I would argue that the entire Bible is doing is discipleship. It's to help us understand, listen, there's ways that we learned how to do things with our family of origin and the culture that we grew up in that God's saying, hey, no, my family doesn't do that. That's not how we do that in my family. We don't do relationships like that. We don't do work like that. As we're going to see in Micah chapter six, we don't do justice like that. And the reason why this is important for us to get and again to wrap our minds around is because God does want us to live out what he has called us to do so much so that we get enjoyment out of glorifying him and also he empowers us to do it. And so when we can frame it like this, we can read verses that seem like, man, God is just judging them. God is just being judgmental on them. Yes, he is because part of discipleship is discipline. 
And that's what Hebrews 12 tells us, that God disciplines those that he loves. And the number one way you can tell kids are my kids is not one because my son might look like me or my daughter might act like me, is because those are the only two kids on the planet I discipline. I don't discipline your kids, and by the way, I don't need you to discipline my kids, right? But you can know my kids because I discipline them. And why do I discipline them? Because I'm a bad father? No, because I'm trying to bring them into line with what God says, which ultimately is to look like Jesus. I wanted to disciple them into that. So that's what God is doing with his people in this, in this text as well. So let's read Micah chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 8. We're going to camp out there for a little while. This is where we ended last week. He says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love and to love kindness or mercy, depending upon your translation, and to walk humbly with your God. So he is saying to his people, he says, what is it that I want from you? What is it that I, the type of persons that I want you to be? I want you to be the type of people that do justice, that love mercy and kindness and walk humbly with God. So that is a description, if you will, ultimately of Jesus. Jesus was a guy who did justice, who loved mercy and walked humbly. So Jesus is the prototype, if you will. Not only is he our savior, but he is our example. And so when we think about, okay, what does that look like? What do these things look like? Well, well, look at the life of Jesus, which is why next year we're going to jump into one of the gospels and actually study the life of Jesus so that we can live out this thing called integrity. But what I want us to see here now is just the standard to do justice, to uh, love mercy or kindness and walk humbly. Well, what we've got to do is we've got to look at some definitions of those words. When God says, do justice, what does he mean? What does that word mean? And this is where I was saying when we were praying earlier that there's been a lot of conversations this year around this idea of justice, which is good. It's important for us to have conversations about justice and what does that mean because it is a biblical concept. But like always, the world will take a biblical concept and twist it or try to make it fit something that the Bible never meant for it to mean. So when we read the Bible, what we have to understand is it means something. And it has meant something for thousands of years. So Bible study is important to understand, okay, the text has one meaning, and it can have many applications, but it has one meaning. So you have to do hard work to say, okay, I'm not going to read into this text the 21st century meaning of this word. I'm going to dig into it and say, what did God mean when he said this? And that meaning is true throughout the generations, no matter what's going on in culture. So let's look at this word, justice. There's two parts to this word, and this word justice is a Hebrew word, mishpat. All right, mishpat. And this word has two aspects to it. When the Bible talks about or uses this word, this Hebrew word for justice, there's, there's two parts to it, kind of a, a positive and a negative, if you will. 
And so hold with me here, because some of this may sound technical to you, but I want you to understand why it's so important to understand the technical parts of this, and then we'll talk about how we apply it. So the two parts to this word justice is this, and I got to tell you on the front end, again, like sometimes I'll say the word Matthew when I mean Micah, this word is hard for me to say, because as I was going through speech therapy as a kid, learning how to talk, I could never get my R's right. So here's the first part. I'm going to do my best. Retributive justice. I did that right, just in case you wanted to know. All right, if you want to hand clap for me, that's totally fine. You can, right there. All right. Retributive justice. When I was trying to say it the other day, I kept trying to say retributive, all right? But retributive justice. And the idea of this is the word retribution, which means when a person is punished for their wrongdoings. So again, the best way to think about this is if somebody commits a crime or somebody commits a sin, if somebody does something towards someone else that we would consider criminal or the Bible considers criminal, retributive justice is when that person is punished for what they did wrong. So when you were growing up and if you have a brother and sister and you had parents and you did something wrong, retributive justice is when your parents punish you for it. Now, I don't know how you grew up. You know, you may have been in the go sit in the timeout for two hours, you know, or two minutes kind of thing, and then they felt sorry for it and they let you out. Not in my house. Retributive justice normally involved a switch from a tree, you know? And I'll never forget my great-grandmama who died when she was 96 years old, lived by herself almost up until that point. I baptized her in her early 90s. This woman was just an amazing woman. I'll never forget, I was staying at her house one time and I got in trouble and she's like, go get a switch. So I was like, I'm gonna go get the smallest one. Well, little did I know the smallest ones hurt the most. So then the next time it happened, I went and got a branch, man, like a branch and handed it to her and she started laughing and forgot to spank me. So retributive justice is that. You know, this is the, the verses in the Bible, spare the rod, spoil the child. And you're gonna actually hear the idea of the rod later in this text. So retributive justice is when someone does something wrong, there has to be punishment for that. There has to be consequences to that. Because if there's not, there's no justice. That's one aspect of it. Now, again, these definitions of justice, I want you to understand biblically or secularly outside of the Bible, no one argues or disagrees about these definitions. It's just there's debate about who's responsible for them. And in this idea of retributive justice, when it comes to a nation, because you have to remember, this was written to Israel in the Old Testament. It wasn't written to us. It was written to them, but it's for us. And the people of God were a nation in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, you see God telling his people as a nation, hey, you have a responsibility for retributive justice. So you go back and read the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and it talks about if somebody does this, they lose their life. If somebody does this, this is how you punish them. Now, we are New Testament believers, and so what that means is the people of God now are not a nation. We are a church. Old Testament, nation, people of God were together. Now, nation, and, or we would say it, church and state are separate. And I want you to know, as a pastor, I believe in the separation of church and state. 
Now, here's why I believe it, and there is a ton of confusion about this, especially as our world becomes more and more secular. How most people think of separation of church and state today is they try to keep the church out of the state. That is not what the principle is about. Our founding people who started this country did not, and Christians, and particularly Baptists, were on the forefront of instituting separation of church and state, and here's why. Not because they wanted to keep the church out of the state, because they wanted to keep the state out of the church. That is why I believe in separation of church and state. I do not want the state telling the church what we can do and can't do, what we can believe and can't believe. And there was, obviously, this year has been a crazy year, and there's a lot of that going on, and and there's a lot of Christians that that have kind of risen up a little bit, got their feathers ruffled a little bit, that said, hey, why did we take off so long? Because the state has told us not to. I want you to understand something. Us as a church, we never took off because the state told us not to. In fact, I was on multiple conversations with our governor, and he explicitly said to us, listen, as ministers, as pastors, I'm not going to tell you not to meet. And I thank God for our governor that he did that. We made the decision to try and be good neighbors. That's why we made the decision. Now, we can have differing opinions. You may have thought we handled it great. You may have think we've handled it awesome. To be honest with you, I don't really care. We did our best. All right? Now, this isn't a message about that. I appreciate the class. But here's the point. I stand wholeheartedly with the idea that I don't want the state telling the church what to do. However, at the same time, biblically speaking, I'm not against the state because the state has a role to play. And according to, uh, I almost said Matthew again. I don't know what my obsession with Matthew is. According to Romans chapter 13, and we did this when we did the book of Romans last year. According to Romans chapter 13, The role of government is this explicit role here when it comes to justice, retributive justice. Romans 13, verses 1 through 6 or 1 through 7, I can't remember. But he says, listen, the role of government is to be a terror to bad conduct and to punish. And then he says this. In fact, this is why you pay taxes. We pay taxes, even as Christian people, because God has set up government. In fact, Paul goes on to say they're actually ministers of God. So the the church and state, yes, they're separate, but they should work together. And how they work together is this primary role exists for the state. It's the state's role to carry out retributive justice. It's not the church's role to carry that out. It's the state's role. Now, the church does have a role to play, though, in the terms of justice, and it's the second aspect of justice that I want to give you the definition for. Here it is on the screen. It is restorative justice. Restorative justice. And what is that? This is different than retributive. It's when those who are unrightfully hurt or wronged are restored and given back what was taken from them. So two aspects of it. Retributive justice, again, in a negative sense, is when someone commits a crime, they are punished for the crime. And Romans 13 tells us that punishment is a terror to bad conduct. So we want other people seeing, hey, that's what they got for doing that thing. I don't want to do that thing. Right? I'll never forget. I'm the youngest of three. When my brother got in trouble, I'm like, I ain't going to do that. 
One of the reasons why I tried to act good as a kid is because I saw my older brother and older sister get in trouble, and I'm like, my dad's big. That looks like it hurt. No, thank you. Retributive, right? But what is restorative? Restorative is different. Restorative justice is when whoever was sinned against or the crime was committed against, whatever was taken from them in that is restored. Again, not a hard concept to understand. Now, again, no one, uh, no one really argues state or church about these two definitions. Now, here is where the debate comes. What is the role of government in exercising these two elements of justice? Biblically and personally, I want you to understand my position, if you will. The church or the state has the job of retributive. The church has the job of restorative. Now, what do I mean by that? When someone is, is committed again, a sin is committed or a crime is committed, the state has the authority to make whoever made that decision against those people pay them back, right? So let's just say that you stole $1,000 from somebody. The state says you're guilty of that. Pay them back. Now, this happens all the time. Now, who actually does the paying back? Not the government, but the people. Now, why do I say the church has the role of restorative justice? Because here's what happens. A lot of times what happens is when justice or crimes are committed and justice is required, either A, those people can't pay them back, or B, they just, they're still sinful people and they will never pay them back. So the church has a role to play in restorative justice. And I would even argue this biblically because you don't see in the Bible this overwhelming idea that the state should force people to redistribute their own wealth. What you do see in the Bible over and over again is the Bible commanding people with wealth to redistribute it themselves. And we would call this charity or service or giving or generosity. So here's what, I, and, and, and hear me, this is not a political sermon, but it does have political implications. This is a theological sermon which all sermons should be theological, right? This has theological bearing, and here's what it means. Again, and we could have debates, and I don't have time for that. You don't have time for that, especially in a gathering like this. We could have debates about how this is lived out politically, but here's why I'm stressing this. Because there's been all kinds of conversations this year about justice, and one of the buzzwords that has become a part of common nomenclature is the word social justice. And here's, as your pastor, I want you to understand something. Social justice in its truest definition is not biblical. There is a difference between social justice and biblical justice. And we as Christians have to learn how to talk correctly so that we can understand where the Bible commands us to act. And where does the Bible command us? The Bible commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. So when our neighbor is sinned against, when something happens to someone we love, the state has a role to play in punishing the people that committed that crime, and the church has a role to step in and help restore those people who were sinned or the crime was committed against. Does that make sense to you? So the idea of biblical justice 
stands contrary to the idea of social justice because social justice says that the government is responsible for both of those. Retributive and restorative. To where Romans would say, no, 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 you pay taxes for one of those, not for both of those. And here's the problem. The problem, theologically speaking, is if we allow the government to have that kind of responsibility, then it lessens our personal responsibility. The mindset becomes like this. I don't have to care for my neighbor. The government will. I don't have to love my neighbor as myself. The government's got that. Isn't that why we pay taxes? No, not biblically speaking. So when we're talking restorative justice here, when, when Micah says in Micah 6, 8, do justice. There's two aspects of it. You cannot have a functioning government that doesn't carry out retributive justice, and you cannot have a functioning church that doesn't carry out restorative justice. Are you with me when I say that? So that is our role to play. Our role to play is to work with the state, and we love the state. We love our local politicians. We love our local law enforcement. We are with people who are carrying out retributive justice. We don't speak ill of them, and also we don't put on them more responsibility than God puts on them. It's our responsibility to carry out restorative justice. Now, there are going to be times where that might put us at odds with the state. That might put us at odds with people who think differently than us politically. That might put us at odds with people. No, 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 I don't think that that's your role. I think that's the government's role. And then we vote people in who think that way. That's okay, but here's what I want you to understand. It doesn't matter who our local leaders are, who the law enforcement is, or who our president is. It doesn't lessen our responsibility to do the restorative part. Which is why I have been stressing in this series, listen, it doesn't matter who the president is. We still have to wake up tomorrow and do our job. And I think Christians for far too long have been debating politically about the role of the government, and we have not been acting in a way that's restorative. Now, what would happen if the church actually stood into the mess of where injustice was happening and actually worked to restore? Maybe the world wouldn't feel the need to always try to get the government to do it. Because the church was already there before the government ever showed up. And that's the role. Now, if we don't do that, I want you to understand something. God gets upset. God gets upset when his people don't do this. I'm going to show you another text in Jeremiah chapter 22, just to show you that God is at least consistent. Jeremiah chapter 22, I have it on the screen, verses 1 through 5. He says this, Thus says the Lord, Go down to the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah. See, Jeremiah was written after Micah. The northern kingdom has already fell. Now there's only the southern kingdom. He says, who sits on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Verse three, thus says the Lord, do justice. Sounds pretty consistent to me, doesn't it? Do justice and righteousness. And now here's the restorative part. Deliver from the hand of the oppressor who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien. Another way to say that is the immigrant, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. He's saying, listen, I have called you to be a light among the nations. 
And, and I want you not only to make sure people aren't being taken advantage of, but I want you to free them from that oppression and help them no longer be fatherless or widows. No longer have to rely upon the, just the government to have those needs met, but I want you to go and deliver them, and deliverance is twofold. Yes, stop the people that are doing that to them, but also restore them. He says, do that. And then listen to this, verse four and five. For if you indeed obey this word, then there shall enter the gates of this house kings who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, and they and their servants and their people. You know what God's saying? You take care of the least of those, I'll take care of you. You ignore the least of those, I'll ignore you. Look at verse five. But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself. He don't have to swear on his mama's grave because he ain't got one. Swears by himself because there's no one higher. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. I've told you before often that one of the reasons why churches die is because the Holy Spirit left and they never noticed. But what, are the, what, are, what, are, what is one of the biggest evidences that the Holy Spirit left? The church quit caring about its community. The, the church quit going after the wrongs that were done in their community. Quit caring about the fatherless and the widow and the oppressed. And so God said to the people then, and I think he is saying to us now, listen, you care for them, I'll care for you. But they didn't. Look at verse nine, back to Micah. It says, the voice of the Lord cries to this city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Fear of the rod, this is what I was saying earlier, that's, we would say that's a belt, right? A spanking. Fear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? The scant measure that is accursed. Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies. And I love this next phrase. And their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. In case you were just wondering where the tongue resides. What is he saying? He's saying to the people of God then, just like he's saying to the people of God now, listen, you quit caring about the things that I care about. And you started actually manipulating things to just bless yourself. So much so that you started acquitting yourself. You have deceitful scales and weights. And you have to remember back then, they didn't have you know, Google to know how to you know, go from ounces to pounds and all that kind of stuff. They had weights, and, and so they would literally tip the scales to benefit themselves and to oppress others. And God says, do you not think that I don't care about that? You don't think that I can see that? And listen, those of you that maybe you're an employee and you don't always do things on the up and up, or maybe you're a business owner and you don't always do things on the up and up, do you don't think God sees that? God doesn't notice that. And at the end of the day, what is the heart of the person who is deceitful? Twofold. They're trying to bless themselves, but why? Because ultimately, they don't trust God to do it. You see, if I trust God and I love my neighbor, then I'm showing that I trust God because it's going to cost me to love my neighbor. But if I love my neighbor and I care for the fatherless, the widow, the orphan, 
This is why we try to celebrate those things. You saw the story a couple weeks ago of just foster families here at our church caring for those people. Because we want to sacrifice ourselves for the good of others. And that's where faith is exercised. Because if I'm willing to sacrifice myself for the good of others, I'm banking on the fact that God will take care of me. But if I am twisting things to try to make it look better for myself and then robbing from doing good to my neighbor, then ultimately I don't believe that God will take care of me. And then he goes on, look at this, verse 13. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate, same word from Jeremiah 22, because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. There shall be hunger within you. Listen to this one. You shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. What is God saying? This was the point I was trying to make last week. Glorify God by enjoying him. Here's what God's saying. You do it my way, I'll always make sure you have enough. You don't do it my way, I will rob from you the joy of what you have. And then also, I will always make sure that you don't have enough. This is why when people say, man, pastor, I can't afford to tithe. You know what I say back to them? You can't afford not to. And, and I used to joke, I used to do this, literally, this is like 20 years ago. I used to do this test with people. And it involves our current president. But back then, he wasn't the president. He was just a billionaire. And I would always tell people, I said, listen, if Donald Trump came to you and said, hey, you tithe, and if you fall short, I got you. And I always used to do this mental test with people. I said, listen, if Donald Trump, who's a billionaire, said he would take care of your finances if you tithe, would you tithe? And people were like, well, heck yeah. And then I would flip it on him. I said, well, who has more, Donald Trump or Jesus? And again, I don't mean that as a political statement, so don't read into something I'm saying. I'm not. Let's put in Bill Gates. I don't care who it is. I just was joking because it's kind of funny to me now. But, but, but what is God saying here? Tithe, trust me, take care of your neighbor. I got you. And my friends, I've been living this way for over 25 years. And I can tell you, it's true. And this is the call of the church. This is why Micah is such an important message for us. Because again, we can debate all day long about politics and fail in our real mission to love Jesus and love our neighbor. And this is how I used to think, and I'm explaining this to you because I don't want you to think like this, but I used to see the two commandments of Jesus in, in you know where it's at? It's in Matthew, by the way. <clears throat> Matthew 22. Maybe that's why it's in my brain. But Jesus said this, the greatest commandments, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. I used to see those on opposite ends of a spectrum. Like love Jesus is over here, love people is over here. And, and we always do these cute things as Christians, like the cross, the cross, the vertical, the horizontal, yeah. You know, and so we always kind of think about it like that. I don't mean those to be funny, but it just is. But then I realized, no, 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 I'm thinking of this wrongly. Jesus didn't put those on the opposite ends of the spectrum or on different beams. What he did is he actually laid them together. He folded them in on themselves and he said this, when you are loving your neighbor, you are loving God. When you're loving your neighbor, you're loving God. 
And if you want to love God, love your neighbor. This is why Jesus said that what you do to the least of those, you do unto me. So as the church, and by the church, I don't mean the institution, I mean us as the people. If we want this world to be a different place, then we have to care beyond Christmas, right? We have to care. We have to do restorative justice. And, and this is the part that I got to be honest with you that frustrates me a lot of times with conservative Christians. They want to rail against the fact that they don't want to pay taxes for the government to do it, but they don't want to do it themselves. They want to rail against the fact of what's happening politically, but they don't want to show up at church and serve. Well, if the government doesn't do it, who does? We do. Now, again, I tell you this all the time. I'm not saying don't vote. vote. I ain't going to get up here and hold political science for you. But what I am going to do is vote and then wake up tomorrow and do the next right thing. Wake up tomorrow and do the next right thing. And what is the next right thing? It is doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly with your God. Now, we can't solve every injustice in the world. And so as a church, we've decided to take Acts 1-8 seriously. You know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Those are geographical reasons, re regions. So as a church, we try to minister, do restorative justice in geographical regions. So first, our Jerusalem is Jasper and Canton. Then our Judea is like Atlanta. Our Samaria is kind of like United States, ends of the earth. Well, you get that one. That one's easy. For us, that's international. Primarily, that has been in Haiti, Dominican Republic, and Kenya. And we're trying to pray through, and God has just been God, and lining up relationships so that we can do restorative justice in those regions. And it's been amazing just to see what God has done this year. And I'll talk more about this next year. But to open up doors for us to do justice, and, and some of that will celebrate what God's been doing in Kenya what God's been doing in Haiti, and, and we have some new opportunities about what God wants, maybe wants us to do in the Dominican Republic in the area of human trafficking. And so I'm excited about those opportunities because this is how we as a church live out the message of Micah. We don't wait on government to solve the problems. We see ourselves as the solution to the problems. And those of you that are in leadership, by the way, who are the best kind of employees? Is it the people who always bring you the problems? Or is it the people who bring you the problems and then what they're going to do about it? Hey, here's the problem, sir. Here's the problem, ma'am. But here's the three solutions I've, I've come up with. Which one you won't do? And I'll have it done by tomorrow. That's awesome, isn't it? Don't you think? That that kind of idea, that kind of effort, that kind of thought process comes from the Spirit of God? Where we look at the problems in our community and we say, God, that's a problem. I'm going to pray and I'm going to come back tomorrow with three solutions and you say which one you want me to do. That's the kind of church we want to be, isn't it? And isn't that kind of the kind of church our communities want us to be? Listen, I want to be the kind of church that our community is like, you know what? I don't believe in Jesus, but those dead gum revolution people, they are so nice. They don't cut me off in traffic with the R in their car. That's a tough one, ain't it? 
I want our neighborhoods, I want your HOAs to be like, you know what? We want more than our cars up in here. We want more of those people who help bring solutions to the problems that we're facing in our societies. And here's why I'm stressing this, because God says in his word, that's what we're called to do. And he cares about this so much that if we don't do it, he will discipline us. I mean, literally, the nation of Israel, he kicks them out. Why? Because they didn't care for their neighbor. Ironically, they were slaves in Egypt. And then the moment they became in power, they started enslaving others. You know why we do that? Because we forgot what it was like to be enslaved. See, this is why I think Christians should be the most loving people on the planet. You want to know why? Because a Christian knows how bad they were and the links to which Jesus went to rescue them. Christians know, you know what? I was an enemy, not of the state, but of God. And he restored me. He restored me to himself. And how did he do that? Here's what's crazy about the gospel of God. He did that by executing judgment, not on me, the one who deserved it. I deserved the retribution. I deserved the rod, but he put it on Jesus. You want to know why in the Bible, the Romans beat Jesus so bad and why God had them beat Jesus so bad, according to Isaiah is because every lash that was going upon his back was the rod that should have been going on yours because of your sin that you committed against a holy and just God. Look at verse 16. Where am I getting? Well, hold on. Before I get to God, I did this the other day too. I try to get so quick to a verse and I forget a point. But I want to bring this back up again, the process of transformation. Don't forget, the process of transformation is this, the we're orientated, we're disorientated, then we're reorientated. Why am I bringing that back up? That's the role of discipline. Right now, I think 2020, if we allow it to be this disorientating season, it can reorient us back to the ways of God if we allow it. Because everybody gets serious when things get bad, don't they? Everybody gets serious when things get real. People are like, this just got real. It, which was crazy to me. It was like before COVID, we all could come to church. But yet people weren't coming. And then COVID comes and we're like, we won't go to church. And you ain't even come back yet. Because when we could go, you didn't. Until that idea of the freedom to, to go is taken away from you. And oh, we should go. Here's what's crazy. You look at the church in China, you look at the church in anywhere where there is spiritual oppression and physical oppression. Today, the church always does, does better when the government tells it it can't do it. The church exploded in China the moment it had to go underground. This is why when COVID happened, I got to be honest with you, I got excited. Oh, we can't meet? Oh, watch this, baby. We're going to do some food drives. We're going to do some backpacks. We're going to do some signs in the yard. And it's funny, people, people were griping, why ain't we meeting? And we would just simply ask, are you loving your neighbor? 
See, this disorientating season is meant to reorient us to the ways of God. Verse 16, now let's get to it. Back to Jesus. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab. Those two names were kings in Judah. What is he saying? He's like, you have kept up the politics, but you ain't kept up the theology. You have stayed true to what's going on in the earthly kingdom, but you have not stayed true to what's going on in the underneath heavenly kingdom. And you have walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation. Same word again in Jeremiah 22 and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. Now this is the connection to Jesus. I was trying to make earlier. See, there's two ways that justice can be done with. We bear it or Jesus bears it for us in our place. And my contention to you has been this and it will always be this, no matter how big or small our church is. People, you know, people are like, how's it going at the church? I'm like, you know what, man? I mean, people are giving, so that's great. I have no clue how big our church is right now. No clue. All y'all watching online, man, that is fantastic. I'm so grateful. I don't know. I told David about two weeks, two months ago, our campus pastor, I was like, you know what, dude? I have no clue. But after COVID, however big our church is, we're going to get up the next day and do the next right thing. That's what we're going to do. Why? Because God restored us. Because I want to be, be more concerned about what God is doing than what my president is doing. I want to be more concerned about what God is doing in the world and how we can join him in that than whether or not we have political standing. And here's what he says. If we don't live like that, we will bear the scorn of that. Now, the good news of the gospel is this. According to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, the writer says, fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who scorned the shame on the cross. See, the reasons why Christians care about this is because the scorn that we should have borne, Jesus bore. The reason why I care about restorative justice is because I was restored, even though I was unjust. And that's why we should care about it. And like I said, we can't solve every injustice in the world, but try to solve one. Care about something. And this is what's crazy. God set it up this way. Isn't it amazing that we get more joy out of serving than we do having stuff? Why is that? Because God invested it there. If you serve and you help people, you'll have way more joy than, like Micah said, you're trying to sow and reap and build, and God's like, I ain't going to let you enjoy that. I ain't even going to let you enjoy a big house and cars and stuff because if I let you have joy in that, you would be missing out on real joy. Now, is it wrong to have houses and cars and stuff? Heck no. Some of the most generous people I know are some of the most wealthy people I know. And some of the stingiest people I know are the poorest people I know. It has nothing to do with how much you have. It has everything to do with how much Jesus has you 
and how much you understand that he bore your sin on the cross and he scorned its shame, now freeing you from your slavery to sin. And now what do you do as a free person? You go free others from enslavement. And God has invested. When you give your life to that, you'll have more joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us enough that you judge us, but you also took that judgment for us. And so God, when I was describing the fact that the reason why Jesus was so brutally killed, it was so graphic because it was depicting how wrong it is that we sin against you. And so God, if there's anybody here today who has not understood that Jesus took their retributive justice, he took their punishment, and he will restore to them the righteousness and glory that was lost, I pray right now you'd save them and help them understand that. And again, if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus, then the invitation today is simply this. Allow Jesus to take that judgment for you and allow you to receive and be restored into righteousness. And if you want that, you can pray with me. You don't have to do it out loud. Whether you're in person or online, and it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me that you sent your son Jesus to take the punishment for my sins, judging him in my place, and I receive the restoration of the relationship between you and I. I ask you to forgive me, save me, make me righteous in Christ. You're here today in one of our locations. We want to know that you just trusted Christ. And so very simply, again, I'm going to look around and talk. But if you just pray that, we just simply lift your hand up so we can see that. Thank you. Thank you. We got men and women going to walk around and put a gift in your hand. And when they do, you can put it down. But then if you made a decision, whether you're online or in person, just a second, you have an opportunity to text us your information. But as always, I want to speak to those who have been restored to Christ. I want you to understand God doesn't just save us from something. He saves us to something. He restores us because now through us, he wants us to become restorers. He redeems us because he wants us to become redeemers. He frees us because he wants us to set other people free. And so as a church, we care about the fatherless, the widow, the oppressed, we care about those that God cares about, and we don't want to push off onto the government what is our responsibility, which is to love our neighbor as ourself. And so as a church, again, collectively, organizationally, we've been celebrating with you some ways we're doing that, and we want you to know that you're a part of that, but we also want you to leave and power to do that on your own. And that may happen in ways that are never going to show up in a video, but God knows. And God will bless that. Father, I pray that we would live out your justice on the earth. 
We would understand the role that government has to play. We don't want anarchy gone. But we would not go too far the other way and swing the pendulum to where we put all the responsibility on the government. But we do our part of restoring. And God, we ask you to bless us as we do this, as, as we move out in faith and, and, and trust you, God, we know that you're going to take care of us. And so we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you, church.